what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, Canada's deepest lake is being transformed, likely by climate change. We thought these large lakes, they'd just be much, much slower to react. Well, we were quite surprised by how big the changes have been, especially over the last 20 years. And Stone Age woodworkers, a rare find of the builder's work from half a million years ago. This structure is an arrangement of two pieces of wood. We could see clear marks of stone tools having been used to reduce and shape that log. Plus, understanding how well bats do in the belfry, I mean bat box, anticipating marine heat waves, and Osiris Rex returns with a little piece of heaven for asteroid scientists. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Going in. Going in. Touchdown declared. All right. Sampling is in progress. In October 2020, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission briefly touched the asteroid Bennu, just long enough to grab a heaping handful of its gravelly surface. Sample collection is complete, and the back-away burn has executed. (laughs) And now, after a return trip of nearly 6.2 billion kilometers, the spacecraft is expected to arrive back on Earth on September 24th with its precious cargo. Scientists around the world are eagerly anticipating the chance to study rocks from Bennu, but before NASA sends those samples out... Brother Bob Mackey from the Vatican Observatory will be taking one vital measurement. That Brother Mackey gets first crack at the samples has nothing to do with religion. He's the curator of the Vatican's meteorite collection and an expert on space rock porosity, the pores or empty space within the rocks. And NASA needs to know what Brother Mackey can tell them about their new samples. We've caught up with him at the Vatican Observatory headquarters in Castel Gondolfo, Italy, before he heads off to NASA in Houston, Texas. Hello, Brother Mackey. Welcome to our program. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Tell me how about how you got involved in analyzing the OSIRIS-REx asteroid samples. Well, it started with my general expertise in a particular type of measurement for getting the density and porosity of meteorite samples in particular, And the working group lead for the sample physical and thermal analysis working group kind of uh, called me up and and asked for my expertise initially just as advice. And then as we started working more together, he said, hey, why don't you just join the team and, and actually build the instrument? Well, walk me through your experiment. How do you actually measure the porosity of these samples? So the technique we use is called ideal gas pycnometry. And I should say what we're measuring is actually volume. Because density is mass divided by volume. Mass is easy. You put it on a scale. You just weigh it. Uh, but volume is difficult, especially if you don't want to damage or contaminate it. 
So this ideal gas spectrometry uses two chambers, in fact, and takes advantage of the ideal gas law at constant temperature, or what's known as Boyle's law, which says that if you don't add or subtract material, and if you don't change the temperature, then the pressure times the volume stays a constant. So we put the specimen in a chamber and pressurize it, and we measure that pressure, and then we open a valve that expands the gas into another chamber, and as that volume expands, the pressure will drop. We measure the new pressure, and then some basic calculations that any first-year physics student can do will tell us the volume displaced by the rock itself. Oh, I see. So the, the gas that you're putting in there will fill up all of those spaces in the rock. And yes. that's basically what you're measuring is, yes. is how much volume is in there. Yes, the gas penetrates into the interior space. So the only space that the gas doesn't get into is the actual solid component, the rock. So that's the volume that we're measuring. Now, in order to know how much pore space is, we also need to know the component of the whole volume of the rock, basically take the outer envelope, the outer surface, and all the volume contained inside that. And uh, there's a different technique that's being used for that volume, and that's uh, called structured light scanning. It's basically a light scanner, so taking complicated series of photos and stitching them together and turning it into a 3D model of the specimen. And so that'll give the volume of the rock plus the pore space. And then my measurement gives just the volume of the rock, and the subtraction of the two gives the pore space. Oh, I see. <laughs> now, once you get the porosity of these rocks from asteroid Bennu, what does it tell you about that asteroid in particular? We hope that knowing the porosity of the rocks and knowing the porosity of the asteroid as a whole will tell us the amount of space that's kind of in between the rocks. So if... As we believe Bennu is a rubble pile, which is a collection of boulders loosely held together by gravity, it's going to have a very high macroporosity or, or amount of pore space between the rocks. It'll also help us to understand and constrain the models for the rocks themselves and their strengths, and hopefully help us also to understand a little bit more about how they formed, how they became rocks in the first place. A lot of that is a little outside of my own expertise. I, I work with the measurements for the most part. Other people work with the models. When it comes to meteorites that, that are rocks that fell from space, they come in different types. There's some like are stony and others are solid iron. By knowing the porosity of Bennu, what's this telling you about the different types of asteroids that are out there? Well, we believe that from both spectral observations and the direct measurements from the, the uh, spacecraft, we believe that, that uh, Bennu is a primitive type of carbonaceous chondrite type of material, which means that it has not been differentiated. It's very, uh, preserves a lot of the early signatures of the, of the formation of the early solar system. So some precursors of the asteroids formed big enough that the material melted and the dense material formed an iron core and the Medium density stuff formed a, an olivine mantle, and, and then the, the low density stuff formed a crust. But some of it also just kind of everything is a mix together and isn't differentiated into a core mantle and crust. And Bennu is one of the kinds of objects that the material that it's made of formed from this primitive object that did not have a core mantle and crust. It might be more than one. We actually think there's at least two different types of rock on Bennu, and we hope to be able to confirm or deny that by studying the specimens. Could asteroid Bennu help us better understand where the early building blocks of life may have come from? 
One of the goals of this mission, in fact, and one of the important things of keeping everything as pristine as possible is to be able to study organics on the specimens and inside the specimens. When you have contact with the earth, the earth is ubiquitous with not just life, but amino acids and all sorts of organic molecules that are parts of the building blocks of life. So it's one thing you can't really study very well with meteorites because all the meteorites have been exposed to this environment. But with the Bennu specimens, which will have been preserved away from the Earth environment as much as possible, then there are people who are definitely in the, in the pipeline for studies of the specimens to study organic material and to try to understand whether or not there are these building blocks of life present already in the specimens. And so it's very important in everything that we do that we don't add anything accidentally by contaminating it with earth materials, which is one of the reasons why we're being so very careful with keeping it as clean and pristine as possible. What do you hope these samples can tell us about the nature of our solar system, especially the early solar system? These specimens are four and a half billion years old. They date back to the earliest days of the formation of the solar system. So they preserve a history of the early days of the solar system. And we also have this history preserved in a lot of meteorites, but the less processed the stuff we get, the better it is. And so this the stuff we're getting directly from the asteroid will tell us a lot more than even, even the best preserved meteorites. <laughs> and just one last thing. The spacecraft has to make it through the Earth's atmosphere, high temperatures, parachutes have to come out, it has to land in the desert. How's your anxiety about the landing at this point? I have a fair amount of anxiety about the landing. It's, it's a rather extreme event coming in through the atmosphere. It's going to undergo a lot of Gs, a lot of shaking. And if the rocks are too weak, they might even just break apart and, and all will get is dust. We're hoping we get solid rocks. We're hoping we get some good stones out of this. But uh, we won't know until we open up the capsule. And uh, I've got my fingers crossed. I'll be saying some prayers. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Mackey, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Brother Bob Mackey is a research scientist and curator of the Vatican's meteorite collection at the Vatican Observatory headquarters in Italy. Here's a pop quiz. Do you know the deepest lake in Canada? Here's a hint. It's not one of the Great Lakes, but it's bigger than two of them. If you guess Great Slave Lake, congratulations on your limnological literacy. Great Slave Lake in the Northwest Territories is Canada's fourth largest lake, and it reaches depths of 600 meters. But despite its size, like much of Canada's north, it's changing faster than many biologists might have thought possible. Not in ways that are immediately visible, though. In fact, the things that have changed most in the lake are practically invisible. They're diatoms, which are tiny but incredibly important, as they make up the base of the food chain in the lake. Dr. John Small of Queen's University in Kingston was part of a research team that's been studying this. Dr. Small, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Oh, I'm happy to be back. Thank you. 
First of all, tell me about diatoms. Where are they? Well, diatoms are a very important group of algae, and algae are the main primary producers in uh, in lakes and also oceans. And so by that we mean they're sort of like plant-like organisms, but they're mostly microscopic. Uh, when it comes to diatoms, you could put uh, typically hundreds on ahead of a pin. But of course, they're extremely important. They're at the base of the food chain. And so they're a major food for small animals, which are food for bigger animals and fish and so forth. A major advantage of diatoms is they have glass cell walls. And because of that, uh, they're extremely well preserved in fossil records. So we can use them to reconstruct how lakes have changed over time. How do you actually study them? One of the great things about lakes is that every lake you see is like a time machine at the bottom of a lake. Lake sediment or lake mud is slowly accumulating. You can remove a core or like a tube of sediment from the bottom of a lake. And in that mud is an incredible library of information of what lived in the lake and also what lived outside the lake. And we as uh, we call ourselves paleolimnologists, so those are limnologists or lake biologists who reconstruct lake histories, we use the information in dated lake sediment cores to reconstruct how lakes have changed over time. And we've used that for many, many applications, everything starting with acid rain to climate change to different types of impacts. Mm. Well, how far back in time can you go with the sediments in Great Slave Lake? Well, you could be able to go back 10, 11,000 years, uh, but we didn't in this study. This was a study done jointly with uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada and Dr. Marlene Evans, and was mainly the, the work of uh, Dr. Kathleen Ruland in our lab here. And in these cores, we were looking mainly interested in the last few hundred years, especially the last 200 or so years, because that's the period when most climate and other types of human impacts have been happening. So we focused on the last two centuries. So what's happened to the diatoms in Great Slave Lake? Well, we were quite surprised. We've done this type of work uh, mainly on very small lakes, uh, including ponds in the high Arctic. Some of these we've had on previous shows on Quirks and Quarks. Uh, we somehow thought that probably these big, these enormously deep lakes would somehow be buffered to some of the effects of climate change. The, the biggest changes we'd expect are in small lakes because they have very small volumes, you know. And we saw big changes with climate warming happening there. But we thought these large lakes, they have lots of thermal inertia. You know, they typically long, ice-covered. They'd just be much, much slower to react. Well, we were quite surprised by how big the changes have been, especially over the last 20 years. When it started warming in the 1900s, you see different species coming in. And this would be especially these large chain-forming type species uh, in the genus Olacosaira. I know it's a mouthful. Um, and that, that continued on up until about 20 years ago when there's a really dramatic change happening. Uh, and that's where these larger larger diatoms are replaced by these small Discostella species, which we know indicate less ice cover and um, uh, longer periods of thermal stratification. So they're really changing uh, with warming and with less ice cover. This is really quite a large change in the food supply that's happened. Uh, and with climate change, uh, there's winners and losers when it comes to species. Some do better, and some do worse. So we're really not sure how that will cascade through the food web. But what we can say with a fair amount of certainty, it is going to cascade through the food web uh, and will result in some changes. Because the uh, bottom of the food chain changes, it'll have a cascading effect. I'm, I'm thinking about, we're hearing about changes in Canada's boreal forest, that it might change from forest to grassland, which would affect the kind of animals that can live up there. Exactly. And we're doing this, you know, we, we see, we're terrestrial organisms, we see what's happening online. What happens in lakes is often under the radar. <laughs> but you know, if you think of a food chain or a food web as a pyramid, the diatoms and the algae are at the bottom of that pyramid. 
if that foundation starts changing, everything is going to be shifting. But is this a good news story or a bad news story? This is very hard to tell. Well, for someone, if you want to know, if you want to keep lakes the way they were in their natural sense, the lake has changed quite dramatically. Whether, say, you're a fisher, and this this is important for a Great Slave Lake. Great Slave Lake has uh, the largest uh, commercial, uh, recreational, and indigenous fisheries in the Northwest Territories. We're really not sure what that will mean. And again, there could be winners and losers. There's less ice cover. So there is more sun's energy coming to the lake. You may get overall more, and you are getting more algal production. We know from uh, other studies by looking at um, remote sensing, they are showing that steadily over the last 13 or 16 years, uh, total algal production has been increasing. That may be a good news story. That may, for some al, for some fish, <laughs> for some, for some people. Uh, too much algae, on the other hand, isn't very good for many people. And we've already had hints of this, even in the Yellowknife region. Uh, you've probably done stories recently on algal blooms or blue-green or cyanobacterial blooms. We, down in southern Ontario, where I live, we're getting more and more algal blooms. And this, you know, cottagers don't like it, people don't like it in their drinking water. And we can link that to a warming climate. So I don't think Great Slave Lake is going to turn into a big algal bloom. But depending where you are, these types of ramifications of too much algae can also be a problem. Uh, so especially if you're in the in the nearshore area. But mm -hmm. again, it's very hard for us. To, this is where you need more research. Um, most people care about the fish, uh, and we, you know, there could be some species that are going to do better, some species that are going to do worse, and that really is still very hard to say. It's a, a study that needs more study. Yeah, well, that's a lot of what I do. <laughs> but uh, the, the first step in uh, solving an environmental problem is knowing you have one or or understanding. And, you know, I mean, the lake has changed dramatically. And it's very hard to say. It, who, it depends who you're talking to, whether you're a winner or a loser. Um, you know, if, if you're talking to a fisher, they want to know, is the lake trout and whitefish, are they going to do better? We don't really know. Not yet, at least. They may, because there might be more food in the system. Uh, by the same token, if certain areas heat up too much, you know, there, we see lake trout in southern Ontario in trouble because the, the water's getting too, too warm and the oxygen is decreasing. So it's, it's complicated. Dr. Small, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Dr. John Small is Distinguished University Professor in the Department of Biology at Queen's University in Kingston. Unlikely that half a million years from now, archaeologists will find any evidence of the wooden fence or deck you built in your backyard. That's because wood rots, especially in damp conditions. And that's frustrating for archaeologists, because it's likely that ancient people used wood a lot for tools, structures, pretty much everything we use it for today. But mostly those artifacts just decayed away over the millennia. But sometimes you get lucky, like Dr. Larry Barham and his team were in 2019 while exploring a site at Colombo Falls in Zambia. He and his colleagues uncovered evidence for the earliest structural use of wood, dating back nearly half a million years. 
Nothing like it had ever been seen before that far back in the archaeological record. Dr. Barham is a professor from the Department of Archaeology, Classics, and Egyptology at the University of Liverpool in England. Dr. Barham, welcome to our program. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. First of all, take me to Colombo Falls in Zambia. What's it like there? Oh, I wish I could take you. I wish I wish we could all go. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's an extraordinarily beautiful place. The falls drop more than 700 feet down into the bottom of a gorge, and there's a little rainforest down there. But that's not where the archaeological site is. The site is behind the falls. It sits in a floodplain surrounded by hills with, with forests on them. It's still a beautiful place, uh, but not quite as spectacular. How old was this material that you found in 2019? We have a series of dates which allow us to construct three different phases of, uh, of time through the site. And the, the earliest of the material is from 476,000 years ago, plus or minus 23,000. Wow. And it's in, in yeah, it's the wild place. <laughs> and you know, it's the, definitely the wild place because that's where we also found what I'm calling a structure. And this structure is an arrangement of two pieces of wood. One is a, a log, which tapers at both ends and has a notch in it. That log with its notch is sitting on a tree trunk at a horizontal angle. And when we saw that, we thought, mm, that maybe that's natural. Maybe the river sort of rafted these two pieces of wood together. But when we started looking closely at the, the overlying piece, we could see clear marks of stone tools having been used to reduce and shape that log. So these, these logs had been had been cut so that they fit together? What shape did they make? They, well, yes, it, it is definitely uh, an intentional thing. The shape is <laughs> it, it's almost a cross, but we're missing, I think, a large part of what was a, a, a more extensive structure. I think the key point here is that a notch is an engineering, it's an engineering concept, was when you put a notched piece on top of another. It, it locks into place. It, it can't move easily side to side. It becomes stable, and they could support something. So you're saying that they, they form a cross, they're not so that they fit together. I'm thinking of the way uh, logs in a log cabin fit together at the corners. Is that the idea? Yes. Glad you mentioned the log cabin because as I think as the only American on the site, I looked at when I first saw this um, arrangement, and I thought Lincoln Logs, and I'm sure you listeners know about Lincoln Logs. Those were toys, right? Yeah. And as, as a boy, I played with Lincoln Logs, and I made log cabins. In the, in the Lincoln Log arrangement, you have little pieces of wood with notches in them. Some have notches on two sides, and some have them on one side. The one notch in the Lincoln log, though, is the one I used to try to think through what was being done at Colombo Falls, you know, 476,000 years ago as an engineering principle. What went through your mind when you saw this kind of engineering almost half a million years ago? Well, the first thing I thought is, why work trees if you assume that early Stone Age people were hunters and gatherers, always on the move, trying to find food or water or, or whatever, here they're investing in, in something heavy that they're not going to carry around. It's not a digging stick. It's not a spear. So maybe they actually live there. Maybe this is some kind of semi-permanent place to live. You have the river and, and the floodplain. You have the trees. You have plants. You would have undoubtedly had animals attracted to that environment, maybe, um, under these kind of stable conditions, 
this was a good place just to be. So, so who were the people that were using the wood in this way? There's no bone surviving at Calabo Falls. The water is too acidic. So we have to, ju- we have to use the age as a, kind of, uh, a guide to who could be there, which leaves us then for the region we're in, so south, central, southeastern Africa. We do have a fossil, and it also comes from Zambia. It was excavated in the 1920s. But the species that's been attributed to this specimen is, is called Homo heidelbergensis. And this is a descendant of an earlier large brain hominin called Homo erectus. And the dating has been done on the specimen from Zambia, and it places it about 300,000 years ago. But we know from the, the African record more generally that Heidelbergensis was on the continent 600,000 years ago. So we take that as a time range, 600 to 300,000 years ago. And that fits really nicely with what we've, the time range we're getting for Colombo Falls. What type of wood was it? The type used for the structure is called Combritum zeri, and the wood is, grows locally today. And the wood today is a general-purpose wood used in construction. Uh, it's used for furniture making. And if you allow Combritum zeri to dry out, it's a really durable wood. So how was this wooden artifact preserved so well for 476,000 years? The key factor here is the presence of clay. And the clay acts as a kind of, it blankets the wood and prevents the oxygen from getting into it and bacterial breakdown. Clay requires a very quiet environment to fall to the bottom and cover things. These pieces of wood were preserved in a backwater. And they haven't moved very far, so it means people were actually living around these little backwater areas, which then helps us think about what are they doing with this structure? What's the purpose of it in this context? And my current thinking is that they may have used the structure as a walkway for crossing a sort of wet clay area. They may have perhaps created a platform for storing things, perhaps they make things that needed to be dry or just people wanting to keep dry. Maybe it's a place for firewood or maybe they made a little shelter on top. Um, There is some hint of fire nearby, um, so maybe they are also staying in this place and and cooking and perhaps keeping warm at night, keeping the lions at bay, that kind of thing. So that's the context of how the wood is, is preserved, but also the context in which people were living. So do you expect to find more wooden artifacts from these Stone Age people? Definitely. I have no doubt that site is harboring a a treasure trove of of wooden objects from the Stone Age. I I think it should be called the Wood Age now. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Stone Age is also the Wood Age. Dr. Barham, thank you so much for your time. Oh, pleasure. (laughs) And I hope I can come back to you with uh, new finds to share. (laughs) Thank you. Dr. Larry Barham is a professor from the Department of Archaeology, Classics, and Egyptology at the University of Liverpool in England. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, anticipating marine heat waves in the future. Marine heat waves are certainly getting warmer. 90% of the um, excess heat associated with global warming is, is being dumped into the ocean. And every marine heat wave today is made warmer by the fact that we are accumulating greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Humans aren't the only ones facing a housing crunch these days. Bats are also getting pushed out of their roosts, which is a loss for everyone, given how many insect pests they gobble up. But there is a movement afoot to provide alternative housing in the form of a bat box. So I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with bird houses, so specially built boxes designed for birds to nest in them. Bat boxes are a similar idea, they just look a little different. So it's also a box, but instead of having the hole up on the front near the top, the hole is at the very bottom of the box facing towards the ground. And usually within the box, the opening inside the box is partitioned into various chambers. Our producer, Sonia Biting, spoke with a bat biologist who spent her summer crisscrossing Ontario and New Brunswick to study how well Canadian bats are adapting to their new abodes. I'm Karen Vanderwolf. I'm a Labour Aero postdoctoral fellow at the University of Waterloo. And I'm doing a project on bats, specifically bat boxes, across Canada as part of a citizen science initiative. In Canada, there's really not a lot of information about bat box use in our country. So I wanted to generate data and try to make better recommendations for our climate, our country, to increase the success of these bat boxes. Bats are facing a lot of different threats in Canada and elsewhere, such as the disease, white-nose syndrome. Habitat loss is a big one, of course, as we build more cities and cut down the trees that bats normally roost in. It's good to provide this alternate habitat. Bats are very loyal to their roosts. They will come back to the same places year after year. So if that place is gone, putting bat boxes in their stead is an attempt to help them still have a roost in that area. So I'm trying to learn more about the types of bat boxes that people are putting out on the landscape and also which bat boxes the bats are actually choosing to use. So we're doing this by collecting all this metadata about the sizes of the boxes, where they are, but we also install temperature loggers into these boxes to record the internal uh, temperatures of each of the boxes so we can know which temperatures the bats are selecting to roost in. So where we can, we too try to visit sites to make sure we have all the information we need and also to uh, monitor for the bats. And if there are bats, we can identify them to species and take samples, which is not something the participants can do because you need special training and rabies vaccinations in order to handle bats. The bat box is high on the roof, so it's a bit inaccessible. So what we do is we set up nets around the house where the bats fly. Once the bats hit the net, we have to untangle them, get it out of the net. Naturally, we wear gloves when we're doing this because the bats aren't too happy and they will try to bite us in self-defense. Once we're done the measurements, we release the bat and it flies off and does its thing. 
So we're definitely not able to physically visit every bat box that's registered with my project. That's about 1,500 bat boxes across the country. So that would be a very epic road trip. So partly I rely on local experts in each province to collect some of these data. Okay, we're good. But even taking all that together, it's still the minority of bat boxes that we're actually able to visit ourselves. So I do rely heavily on citizen scientists to collect these data for me. A lot of people send me photos of their bat boxes and I can get a lot of information from the photos. They also collect guano bat poop and mail it to us. And from that guano, we can sequence the DNA and be able to identify the bat species. Another part of the project is actually swabbing the inside of bat boxes to see if the white nose fungus is present. So in eastern Canada, where white nose syndrome has been present since uh, 2010, the little brown bat population has decreased by about 90%. So that's a lot of bats. In eastern North America, it's been estimated that millions of bats, perhaps 6 million or more, have died as a result of this disease. White nose syndrome, it's a skin disease, so it grows on any exposed skin, especially the wings, the nose, the tail, and it actually penetrates into the skin. So this is quite different from other fungal infections we're more familiar with, like athlete's foot that some of us uh, sometimes get. And so their wings get punched full of holes by the fungus. They're leaking out water and electrolytes, and it's using up their muscle tissue for food. And obviously, if they're losing more of their muscles, they're not going to be able to fly. And ultimately, they die from a combination of dehydration and starvation. It doesn't affect all bat species. So in Canada, we have 18 different bat species. But there are three bat species that have been very affected by this disease. And one of those, the little brown bat, uses bat boxes quite commonly. So that's something we're targeting. And so we were wondering if bat boxes are involved in the transmission of the causative agent of the disease. So we've been swabbing boxes across Canada, and that's still ongoing, so I don't have all of my results. But last summer, we did get two positive hits from Nova Scotia. But the rest of the boxes across Canada so far have all been negative. So it doesn't seem like bat boxes are playing much of a role in the transmission of the fungus that causes white nose syndrome. So that's good news. We also, we kind of knew that it was mostly big brown bats and little brown bats that use bat boxes in Canada. I was kind of hoping to find a few more species since there are 18 bat species in Canada, but those are the main two that use bat boxes. And it's been also interesting to find out that even in Canada, there's a lot of boxes that will overheat. They'll get too hot for the bats. Previously, we thought, because this is Canada, we really need to get bats as hot as we can. Paint them black, put them in full sun. But we're finding that that's not the case, that bats need to have choice. So they might want a black box in full sun 
in May when it's relatively cool in Canada. But come July, those sorts of boxes are likely too hot for the bats and they're going to want a cooler box. So a box that's in the shade or a box that's light colored. So it's always good to have a network of bat boxes so the bats can choose which type of roost they want depending on the weather. From my personal standpoint, I just think they're really fun to watch. And I do have a lot of participants mention that. They like to watch them swooping around the yard in the evening. Interesting. Some of my participants have also noted that the annoying insects that you can sometimes get in your backyard are decrease a bit in abundance if you have a lot of bats around. So people also like that. And obviously, if I've learned how many people in Canada are really enthusiastic about their bats, so that's fun. That was Dr. Karen Vanderwolf, a Lieber Eero postdoctoral fellow at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. In recent years, extreme heat has become all too common in summers in the Northern Hemisphere. As our planet's climate changes, heat waves are occurring earlier in the season and seem to be sticking around longer. Well, something similar is also happening in our oceans. Extreme heat is causing surface water temperatures to spike. They hit as high as 37 degrees Celsius off the Florida coast this summer. These are marine heat waves. And by some estimates, nearly half of the world's oceans are currently experiencing them. In order to better understand these extreme heat events, scientists around the world have been working on tools for analyzing and predicting when the next marine heat wave is going to hit. One of those teams works out of the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Dylan Amaya is a research scientist at the Physical Sciences Laboratory at NOAA in Boulder, Colorado, and he's been working on trying to forecast marine heat waves. Hello and welcome to our program. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, we can usually tell when a heat wave is happening on land. I mean, we see a few really hot days in the forecast in a row. So how can scientists tell that there's a marine heat wave coming? Uh, typically, we define marine heat waves as anytime the ocean is above what we call the 90th percentile. That's just a fancy way of saying that the ocean is warmer than 90% uh, of the days before it. Uh, and on top of that, there's sort of a duration threshold. So it has to not only be uh, above that 90th percentile, but it has to stay that way for at least five days. How much warmer is the ocean becoming on average? Well, we know that the ocean takes up about 90% of the excess heat associated with global warming. Uh, and as a result, the global oceans have warmed by something close to a degree Celsius uh, since pre-industrial times. Wow. Now, one of the things that comes up in discussions of ocean temperatures is El Nino and that cycle. How does that phenomena connect with marine heat waves? So El Nino is technically a marine heat wave. Uh, it represents an extreme warming of the equatorial Pacific Ocean. Uh, and when the ocean warms in that part of the world, it, it creates a lot of uh, rainfall in that part of the world. Uh, and typically that, that region is fairly dry. So it puts a lot of heat and a lot of energy and a lot of moisture into um, a part of the atmosphere that doesn't always have it. So what ends up happening is 
Um, essentially, we generate these waves that um, propagate all throughout the atmosphere, all over the globe, and that can um, it can affect the uh, global circulation of wind fields at the surface. It can redistribute precipitation around the planet. It can redistribute temperature around the planet, and it can ultimately drive marine heat waves in different parts of the world. Mm. But uh, I've, we've been hearing about El Nino for a long time. That seems to be a regular phenomenon. Uh, how do the heat waves that uh, you're defining now compare to what was happening in the past? So we know that marine heat waves are certainly getting warmer, and that's a function of that 90% of the uh, excess heat associated with global warming is is being dumped into the ocean. And um, part of that heat manifests in these extremes. So every marine heat wave today is made warmer by the fact that we are accumulating greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Are we currently in an El Nino at the moment? Is that affecting the heat waves that we're seeing? Yeah, we are experiencing um, an El Nino that's still growing. Um, Forecasts projected to uh, continue to grow through the uh, end of this year. And uh, it's almost certainly having an effect on the marine heat waves that we're experiencing around the world. In particular, we can think of one location like the tropical North Atlantic. We know that El Nino has a a strong impact on uh, the stability of the atmosphere over the tropical Atlantic, which can affect the surface winds, which can impact the ocean temperatures. So uh, almost certainly we're seeing those impacts now. So what sort of things go into the marine heat wave forecast? So currently we use um, six uh, climate models from the North American Multimodel Ensemble of uh, uh, Forecasting Models. And these come from modeling centers in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, And right now we're using these models to look at the probabilistic outcome of getting a marine heat wave at any point in the globe from today all the way out to 12 months into the future. Where does the data from these models come from? Primarily from satellites. We get a lot of real-time observations from satellites. Um, That includes ocean temperature at the surface. That includes wind fields, pressure fields. Uh, And to some extent, we also get real-time measurements of the subsurface ocean through different uh, mooring instruments or profile instruments that are out in the water right now. Well, I live on the West Coast, and we had a phenomenon here a few years ago called the blob, which is a big blob of warm water that came north. It was sort of the, uh, the, the thing that sort of kicked off all of this marine heat wave interest in the scientific community and in the public interest. Uh, it had devastating impacts uh, throughout the California current system. Hundreds of thousands of seabirds died. Um, dozens of marine mammal strandings, whales and the like. Uh, the Pacific cod industry basically collapsed, 80% reduction in Pacific cod. So we haven't seen anything like it since, but uh, we're always on the lookout for sort of the next big event. In terms of temperature, how does the heat wave in the Pacific now compare to that blob that came through here? Yeah, the Northeast Pacific is experiencing a pretty substantial marine heat wave right now. We're seeing, you know, temperature departures of three to four degrees Celsius warmer than normal. Um, the blob at its peak uh, was something like, you know, something like three or four degrees Celsius warmer than normal. But what made the blob so devastating was not just its intensity, but its duration. It lasted something like 18 months, which is an insane amount of time to, for uh, a marine ecosystem to be experiencing really warm temperatures like that. So what we have an eye on here at NOAA is trying to figure out, you know, how long will this event last and at this sort of intensity. Now, how can we tell between an extreme heat event and, well, I guess a new normal as parts of the ocean warm up as a result of climate change? Yeah, that is um, somewhat of a complicated question. And it's something that the scientific community is currently grappling with, because you're absolutely right. As the world continues to warm, our definition of what we used to consider to be extreme is going to change. At some point, if we don't take into account that we live on a warmer planet, then our historical metrics for what we used to be considered extreme will be permanently crossed. So you'll see sometimes that you know, 
uh, the, the ocean could be considered in a permanent marine heat wave um, if you don't take into effect that we live on a warmer planet. So this is something that the scientific community is trying to understand right now and, and figure out best practices for defining these events going forward. You may have to raise the bar or raise the ante, say, okay, here's the new normal, here's what an extreme event really is. Exactly. We call that uh, shifting the baseline. So why is it important to be able to forecast marine heat waves? Well, it's important because uh, we need to be able to understand when these marine heat waves are going to be most intense and how long they could potentially last, because it's sort of the combination of that intensity and duration that lead to, you know, the most pronounced impacts, at least the ones that we've seen in the past. Um, So it's not enough just to be able to go outside and, you know, drop a bucket in the water and say, oh, the ocean is 100 degrees today or 37 degrees Celsius today. Um, We need to be able to see how far in the future that extreme temperature is going to last because that will ultimately give rise to impacts. Mm -hmm. Well, we always complain about the weather that, uh, you know, they can't predict far enough ahead, much more than seven days or so. How far ahead do you think you can predict these marine heat waves? Well, it really just depends on where you're at. So um, in places like the tropical Pacific, we can predict marine heat waves out with some amount of skill, you know, going out to a year in advance. And that has to do with El Nino. Um, for the the United States and Canadian West coasts, again, we get that influence of El Nino. And because of that, we have significant skill going out to six and sometimes even eight months into the future. The contrary to that is the North American East coast. Uh, El Nino doesn't strongly influence ocean temperatures along uh, the North American East coast. So we actually have very poor skill there going on, you know, beyond about one or two months. So just in general, then what's your forecast (laughs) for marine weather? for the next year or so. Hot. The forecast is hot. Uh, (laughs) A good fraction of the planet is experiencing a marine heat wave right now. And uh, we forecast a lot of those conditions to persist through the end of this year, particularly in places like the tropical North Atlantic, the Gulf of Mexico, um, the United States West Coast, the tropical Pacific. I mean, I could go on. Uh, There's a lot of different hot spots right now. And really, there aren't any signs of immediate uh, recovery that we can forecast at least. Dr. Amaya, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you very much for having me. Dylan Amaya is a research scientist at the Physical Sciences Laboratory at the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Now, besides contributing to overall global warming and producing devastating storms, marine heat waves can also wreak havoc on the ecosystems in and around the ocean, from algae and mussels to fish to coastal birds and humans that eat that fish. Extremely warm surface waters are a problem for marine species and those whose livelihood depends on them. Studies released this summer suggest that the last decade has been especially harsh for marine life around the Pacific coast. From 2014 to 2019, mass die-offs of seabirds happened after marine heat waves. Top predators like the bluefin tuna and blue sharks were driven out of their traditional foraging ranges after the 2015 heat wave in the Pacific Ocean. But it's not all bad news. An international team of researchers studied how extreme water temperatures affected fish populations over three decades. And it seems that whether it's the frying pan or the fire, fish are pretty robust. William Chen was part of this research team. He's a professor and director of the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Chen, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you for having me. So why can warmer water be so devastating for the ecosystems in and around the oceans? 
Yes, it's because uh, marine life is uh, very sensitive to temperature, particularly fish or shellfish and invertebrates, because their body temperatures are really dependent on environmental temperatures. So what it means is that if there is an increase in water temperatures, their body temperatures will also increase. And when the temperatures become too hot or sometimes too cold, they would affect their normal body functions. And in some cases, uh, we'll need to die off of the um, marine organism. So what did you look at? in your study in particular? So what we did is that uh, we actually look at a lot of different data from around the world that were collected from a scientific survey. These surveys use these methods to uh, sample the fish and then provide estimates on abundance and biomass of fish and invertebrates in the ocean. So in this particular study, our team developed a global database of this data and then we analyze it looking at the estimated change in biomass of different fish species in different parts of the ocean. And then we ask the question whether uh, when there is a heat wave that happened in that particular part of the oceans, what were the effects on the fish stocks as shown from the survey? What did you find? Well, it is a bit unexpected. Uh, what we find is that originally we were expecting that because of many of the known impacts of heat waves on fish and, and marine life, uh, we were expecting a very strong uh, indications of the decrease in biomass after the occurrence of heat waves in different parts of the oceans. But we were surprised to find that the signal was not strong at all. So was there any effect of the heat waves on fish populations at all? What we find is that uh, the impact is sporadic. It is not consistent uh, for every heat waves uh, or in every part of the regions when the heat waves occur. In some cases, when the heat waves occurred at a certain time of the year, some of the species in that area showed a negative impact uh, by the heat waves with a decrease in biomass, while other species may not decrease. At the same time, even in the same place uh, for the same species, when a heat wave occurred in a different years, it doesn't have that same impact as the other years that we find. Uh, so what it shows is that uh, the impact is there, but then it is not consistent across years, uh, across species, or across heat waves. So does this mean that fish can be hit? hard by heat waves, but they can bounce back quickly afterwards? That could be one explanation. And that uh, another thing that we suggest, it may be that um, what we are seeing right now is still within the, uh, the scope of adaptability or, or the way that the fish can accommodate the, the heat wave for some, some of the heat waves. Uh, but what we find also is that some of our earlier research uh, that use computer simulation models to theoretically predict how fish dogs would respond to uh, heat waves, we find that there are significant impacts of heat waves uh, on fish dogs with a high climate change scenarios in the next few decades uh, down to the end of this century. What it means is that uh, what we are seeing now is still within the scope that the fish could accommodate uh, for some of the heat waves. But then if we continue with the current trajectories of climate change without mitigations, the effect will become stronger and stronger and become more and more apparent. Do you have any sense if there's a limit to this resilience in the fish to heat waves? Yeah, I think that we are actually already hitting very close to the limits of these resilience uh, to the heat waves. Uh, there are, first of all, there are already sensitive ecosystems, sensitive species uh, that we know are already being impacted by heat waves, such as coral reefs, uh, kelp forests, and even our coastal marine life that we've seen in the past that it can lead to massive die-off as heat waves occurred. And secondly, we are also seeing more of the compounded extreme events happening. So what it also means is that the biodiversity are not only facing the impacts of heat waves, uh, but then some of the changes that are adding on top of that hit them at the same time. 
take the example of, of salmon. They have both marine and freshwater life stages. Uh, and we know that on the oceans, they are experiencing heat waves, but then on land, they are experiencing extreme precipitation, so uh, flooding, droughts, and also temperature as well in, on land. And that's really a, a sample of uh, how these species are now facing these compound extreme events that really push them to a stage where it is more difficult to accommodate the impacts. Well, we are seeing you know extreme events in other marine life during heat waves. We've got die-offs of seabirds, shellfish. What What's helping these fish populations stay resilient in the face of all of that? Yeah, so there, there could be a, a number of possibilities. So first of all, the fish dogs, uh, they are often quite mobile. Uh, they can move horizontally as well as vertically. Um, so uh, in order to find habitats that are suitable for them to live, and in this case, uh, finding pockets of waters uh, that have uh, temperatures that are, um, are suitable for their body functions. Uh. So basically, one factor could be that it's easier for fish to move to a better environment than something like mussels, which are attached to their habitat. They can't move. That's correct. So even though the fish seem to be hanging on now, we don't want to become complacent about that. Definitely, yeah. Dr. Chang, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Dr. William Chen is a professor and director of the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia. And now it's time for our Quirks and Quarks question. Richard Riggs from Halifax asks, What impact do solar flares have on the planets closer to the sun than the Earth? And here's the answer. Hello, I'm Dr. Elena Hyde, Assistant Professor at York University and Director of the Alan I. Carswell Observatory. On Earth, charged particles from the sun can interact with our magnetic field to create aurora. A solar flare is a strong burst of electromagnetic radiation in the sun's atmosphere and can be accompanied by coronal mass ejections. Some listeners may remember the 1989 power failures in Quebec, which were caused by a CME. So, Strong solar activity can affect electronics, spacecraft, and interact with atmospheres here on Earth. How about other planets? The closer you are to the sun, the more damage flares can do to you. Mercury has been repeatedly blasted by plasma, and that's probably one of the reasons its surface is so brocky and barren. It can have some magnetic storms, but without an atmosphere, it looks quite different. Venus, the next one out from the sun, is closer than Earth is, So it does get pretty well blasted by eruptions and coronal mass ejections. And it has an induced magnetosphere, so it isn't unprotected. But it loses a little bit of its atmosphere every time it's hit. Fortunately, it has a really dense atmosphere. It also creates aurora that are viewable through telescopes. Going out past Earth to Mars, its orbit is twice as far away as Venus, and Mars's aurora are like nothing else in the solar system. Faint, scattered, you might almost call them ghost-like. At larger distances, the sun becomes less important. Jupiter does a great trick combining energy from the sun with a steady dose of charged particles from its moon Io to produce spectacular aurora. But as we travel farther, the sun's energy disperses and Uranus and Neptune are so far away, the aurora tends to be fairly small. It would have to be a mighty storm indeed and very well aimed to affect them at all. Dr. Elena Hyde is a professor of physics and astronomy and director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory at York University. 
And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lemons. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.